following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. aid us in our discipline, we're going to explore a very uh, important teaching to Buddhism, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, known as uh, the Nine Stages of Meditative Concentration. Specifically, when we address concentration we do so with the purpose of understanding where we are we study the following diagram which is a very famous mural we find in pretty much every Tibetan Buddhist monastery in the world in order to understand where we are in our practice So the purpose of this lecture is to examine where we are. What is our level of being? What is our capability? Our ability when we sit to concentrate, close our eyes, and really reflect inside. And so this teaching pertaining to Buddhism was taught by Samael and Vyor in a very synthetic manner. He never explicitly detailed the nine degrees of calm abiding or the nine steps leading to calm abiding, meaning a serene mind. Instead, he expected his students to really study and meditate on the teaching and to work to comprehend this methodology in practice. He also spoke in a very synthetic manner in relation to these nine stages, which is emphasized in this image, which we're going to explain in detail. Explaining how, from the beginning of concentration, the mind is disturbed and wild to its gradual training and eventually leading towards a mind that is completely serene, a mind that is completely still. So to help us to really understand 
where we are and how to effectively concentrate that will lead us towards the real gateway towards meditation. So everything that we do in these studies pertaining to runes, mantra, pranayama, transmutation, sacred rites, these in themselves are means to develop concentration. When we sit to practice, we do these preliminary exercises to help us to focus our mind, which is really the beginning of actual meditation. It isn't meditation itself. And so my purpose in really elaborating on what this diagram means in relation to what Samayalambi are taught is to really help us be sincere and to examine what is the nature of our mind and what do we need to do to develop concentration. So previously we were discussing uh, the step, Eightfold Steps of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, who is one of the founders of, uh, who wrote one of the key scriptures of yoga. And when we talk about yoga, we don't refer to the physical calisthenics of the body, hatha yoga, but we're talking about yug in Sanskrit, union with divinity, or religare in Latin, religion. So Patanjali taught that there are eight steps, which ties into the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. We have Yama Niyama, meaning Yama, restraint of mind, restraining our mind from harmful action. Niyama, precepts, developing real ethical discipline, purity of mind, saucha in Sanskrit, santosha, contentment. Satyam, truthfulness, Aparigraha, renunciation of worldly desires. Or the Ten Commandments, anything that we use as a discipline to train our mind. Yama, niyama, to do or not to do. Followed by asana, which is our posture and our body. Followed by pranayama, transmutation, mantra, sexual energy, runes. Any exercise we use to work with the vital forces in our mind and our body. That leads to pratyahara, which is concentration. Or pratyahara meaning silence of mind. Or suspension of the senses, which leads into dharana, which is concentration. Which is what we're going to be explaining in detail. So previously in our lectures we were talking about these preliminary steps. Ethical discipline, the need to train our mind to fulfill the vows of, yo- vows of yoga, of religion of discipline as well as how to relax our body in order to fully concentrate. So we're discussing really the preliminaries that lead to the actualization of learning how to focus the mind. So some of are taught that we need to have when we sit to practice we have to stop thinking. Which is the beginning to learning how to concentrate. If we sit down and we examine our mind and we see that we're thinking all the time, it means we still have not yet developed pratyahara, meaning serenity of mind, suspension of the senses. Because typically the impressions of life enter our psyche and our mind becomes disturbed as a result of not transforming those elements as they enter our mind. Such as we see a provocative image on a billboard or on television, it strikes the mind, it offends the senses. The mind becomes identified, agitated, 
it's stimulated. We need to really refrain from these type of activities, which I'll be elaborating on, as a requisites to developing concentration. But we find that our mind is overstimulated with all these impressions. They enter the mind. The mind is not still. We don't know how to transform the experience of life as it happens in the instant. Without this understanding of mindfulness and of fulfilling the, the basic vows, chastity or brahmacharya in Sanskrit, sexual purity, the mind becomes overwhelmed, agitated. It can't sit still, which is represented by this image. We find here a, a monk who is chasing after an elephant. That elephant is our mind. The fact that it's dark in the very bottom of the image refers to the dullness of our mind, the laxity of our mental states, the lethargy of our, our, our consciousness. So this monk is chasing after this elephant. And you see gradually this elephant becomes subdued. It even becomes white, it becomes purified as a result of mind training. So the nine degrees that we're going to explicitly detail. And uh, this is the, precisely the path we need to take to realize that our mind in the beginning is really, in this instant, very chaotic, very wild. There is no control or dominance, typically in the beginning. And this path that winds up towards the mountains of the superior worlds is precisely the path of uh, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, the winding golden path of jnana, jnana yoga, knowledge yoga, mind yoga. And it's precisely this higher states where the elephant is tamed and subdued, in which we are free of the mind, and the mind fully obeys our will where you see the image of a, a monk flying in the astral plane, or even in the higher dimensions, Tifereth, symbolized by the mountains of uh, initiation. For if we awaken the eternal planes, and the divinity shows you mountains, or a mountain pertains to walking the path of initiation itself. And so we want to calm our mind, to develop serene mind, which is we find that these waters from the mountains descend, the waters of the pure energies of divinity, these waters become turbulent as they descend down towards Malkut, the physical world, represented by this uh, monk leaving a pagoda of three steps. So these, this pagoda is really the body, Malkut, represented by three floors, three brains, our intellect, our emotions, and our sexual instinctive motor uh, uh, dynamics. So the waters are turbulent because the waters of our mind are chaotic. We receive impressions in life. We go through our day with our work or with our daily occupations or with watching television. We receive impressions that enter the mind and are not transformed. They're disturbed. Therefore, the mind, the elephant, it has no control. And so we have to understand this fact and really be honest. And when we sit to reflect, what is the state of our mind? Because if we want to really enter into the path of what meditation actually is, we need to develop concentration first. So when you lack the elements of serenity, 
even if you meditate assiduously, you will not achieve concentration even in thousands of years. This is Atisha's lamp for the path of enlightenment, to enlightenment, which is this core scripture in which uh, Tsongkhapa, a great reincarnation of Buddha, taught in his Lamrim Chenmo, Tibetan Buddhist doctrine. So we'll explain more specifically each step of this image in detail. So we really have to understand what does it mean to concentrate if we really are going to practice. So I'd like to quote for you a teaching of Pabongka Rinpoche from Liberation in the Palm of Your Hand, where in a very stark and explicit manner explains precisely and honestly a maxim we need to really contemplate and to realize, you know, are we actually practicing when we sit down? Are we really focused on what we're doing? Because no practice will be, have benefit, pranayama, mantra, runes, if we don't understand the nature of concentration itself. So though you may pretend you are doing a practice, you are not practicing at all if you do not know what is required to achieve single-pointed concentration. So in terms of the nine degrees, this is the eighth degree, one of the higher, second to highest rung of actual concentration itself. You must definitely achieve single-pointed concentration with two features. Great clarity together with some stability and tight image retention. So the thing is, the purpose of developing serenity is so that when the mind is perfectly still, we can then begin to meditate and reflect the images from the superior worlds. So when we're fully relaxed, the mind is completely still. There are no thoughts no distractions. We've reached finally the highest degree of concentration, meditative equipoise. Then imagery can reflect from our being, from the internal worlds into our mind, into our clairvoyance, into the lake of our perception. And when it's still, it can reflect the superior worlds. Cool. So if you don't have to will it, this would come automatically, let's say, if you're still, you achieve that state of serenity? Yes. And we'll explain more about what one needs to do when in that state in detail. So we need great clarity. If we sit and we examine our mind, what do we see or what, and what do we not see? That's the question. If we don't see anything, if we just experience the sensations or memories of the day from our events of our life, if they're just surging in our mind without any order, without any clarity, it means the mind is very dull. It means that we really need to work very hard to develop that clarity, and which is born from acquiring more stability. So this is, of course, achieved through self-observation, as we always teach. But more importantly, mindfulness, as we will elaborate. And then, when the mind is serene, meditation is easy. Images come of their own. So we talk a lot about uh, imaginative, inspirational, and intuitive knowledge. Imagination is when we receive images inside. Inspiration is when we feel the, the soul's reaction or response of an emotional superior nature towards that image. We know it is a symbol that comes from our being. We are inspired. Intuition is direct cognition, understanding the nature of that symbol. But imagination, inspiration, intuition which we're going to explain next, 
come as a result of serene mind, if the mind is completely still. If it's not, we cannot develop insight. So in Buddhism, we talk a lot about uh, two terms, vipassana, special insight, and shamatha, which is serenity. Samaan Vayor explained this very beautifully as, uh, as uh, imagination and willpower. Imagination is the power to perceive. If the mind is chaotic, if we are not transforming impressions in the moment in which we receive them, we lack uh, that tight image retention, that clarity of mind. So first we develop through willpower, control the mind. As the Master explains in Igneous Rose, Samhain Vyor, that we must dominate the mind with a terrible whip of willpower. So we need effort, especially in the beginning, to control the mind. But in the higher degrees of concentration, no effort. And we'll explain that. But as Sankapa really emphasized what the Master Samael explained, he says that nowhere does it say anything else but this. If you hope to develop insight, the pashina or comprehension, the training of wisdom, you must first find quietude, shamatha or dhyana, that of concentration. So if we want insight into the ego, into our defects, we have to, we have to develop that uh, stability. If we lack that, then there is no wisdom. Wisdom meaning the power to perceive. So the teachings that we're presenting here come from Sankapa's text, the Lamrim Chenmo, known as the Great Treatise on the Stages of the Path of Enlightenment. This is one of the core texts of Tibetan Buddhism and uh, is very useful to study. I know that when the Dalai Lama was fleeing Tibet from the Chinese, he made a special case to take with him his text of the Lamrim Chenmo before he escaped from Tibet while fleeing into India. And so in this text, it explains how to achieve what are the, the physical requisites and also the psychological training we need to acquire that stability if we want to, what we want is insight. So I invite you to really reflect on the nature of these statements very deeply. So first, dwelling in an appropriate place. We can't meditate if our home is chaotic or cluttered or we live with other people who are noisy, who are distracting, especially in the beginning when we need a sense of quietude to really focus to not meditate in a place that is filthy or that is uh, disorganized. Some place that when we come to sit to practice, we have inspiration to really sit and to relax. Also, if we live in a war zone, we can't meditate. Maybe an adept can meditate in any circumstance, but if living in a by appropriate area means we need, to, we need to live in a place where there's peace. We, there's no threat of our life or danger. So the fact that living here in this city in a relatively safe environment, we're fortunate. There are people across the world who don't have, can't even fulfill this requisite, even if they want to meditate. We get this on our forum. People writing about this problem. 
So an appropriate area has to be clean, peaceful. It does not have to be a temple in our own home. But what matters is that we have a space dedicated to practice. It can be simple. An altar, white tablecloth, candle, religious image, or no altar. What matters is that our environment inspires us and gives us the capacity to really practice. So having little desire. This is something that Honestly, most of us don't have. We usually have a lot of desires in our mind that are constantly conflicting or pushing us to do other things than meditate or to practice preliminary concentration exercises. Defects which emerge and say, I, I want to ride my bike, or I want to watch television, or I need to take care of certain responsibilities. The mind is surging with this torrent of, of forces and energies which we put in motion previously which formulated into our egos. Represented by that water in that first image that was descending down in torrents, down from the mountains into Malkut, or towards the monk in that image. So the waters above are very pure, but when these energies of God that enter into us, into our mind, they become transformed and blackened by desire. So we need to have little desire, meaning curtail our appetite, such as, overstimulating foods or elements which uh, may impede us from practicing well. So we need to learn how to be content. Also, the term for this in Sanskrit is uh, santosha in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Santosha means being grateful for what we have and not craving things that we don't have because that gnaws at the mind and produces the inability to sit still. Also, completely giving up many activities, meaning give up fruitless activities, things that are just useless. And we all have our habits that we do that push us to do, honestly, dumb things. And I'm no exception. For instance, uh, uh, Swami Shivananda said, one should give up reading novels. Especially use, things that are just useless, you know, magazines, journal articles, things which do not promote anything in relation to our spirituality. Really, we have to abandon that. Typically, in a monastic life, initiates would, uh, in the past would meditate six hours a day, study six hours a day, but they would study scriptures that are important, whether in Tibetan Buddhism, the Bardo Thodol, Tibetan Book of the Dead, in India, the Bhagavad Gita or the Muslim initiates in the past with the Quran, really studying scriptures that matter. So we have to really abandon useless things, such as watching TV shows, things that fill the mind with garbage. A lot of shows, they are based on sarcasm and abuse of the mind, or movies that are violent, or things that oppress the senses, offend the senses. Probably one of the most important is really pure ethical discipline. Really examining our ethics. In a given day, have we lied to someone? Doesn't mean that we said something, but internally in our mind, we may have had the thought. Ethics begins by restraining yama, the mind, the senses, from not physically verbalizing, expressing our ego, our defects. Niyama pertains to training the mind. 
deeper to not have that reaction inside. This is the internal silence that Salmael and Vior talks about in revolutionary psychology. So our ethics have to be very pure. And we've got to examine, you know, where in the day have we transgressed in our mind, in our hearts? Also, completely getting rid of thoughts of desire, etc. If we've been studying this teaching and practicing it for a long time, this is really the most difficult. Not thinking evil, but the mind, even if we have the thought we don't want to do this, the mind continues to churn and to gestate with these elements. So, if we really want to develop meditative serenity, we have to abandon all, all of that. To not think. To not conceptualize. For as Samalan Vior stated in Igneous Rose, in his chapter, Esoteric Discipline of the Mind, it is necessary to change the process of reasoning for the beauty of comprehension. Most of the time of the day we're thinking and we don't comprehend where our thoughts come from, where they go, what are they doing, how they arise, why they arise. If we're not comprehending that those processes in ourselves in the instant they happen, we're asleep. And it means that we're churning the mind in the battle of the opposites. So he often talks about, the, in, such as in Magic of the Runes, the, the sensation of contemplation. We have to comprehend what arises in us in the instant. Those who want to enter into the wisdom of the fire must overcome the process of reasoning and cultivate the ardent faculties of the mind. We must only extract the golden fruit from reasoning. The golden fruit of reasoning is comprehension. Comprehension and imagination must replace reasoning. So comprehension emerges when the mind is still. This is serenity in Buddhism. Shamatha. Imagination is the capacity to perceive, the vipassana. So he's talk, in his, his terms, he's explaining the same concept the, that Tsongkhapa taught. If we don't uh, comprehend the mind in the instant, we can't perceive. Well, you say that reasoning has no leading virtues then? You know, reasoning, people do this reasoning, they compare, well, you know, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that, or, or 70% tells me to do this, 30, tells me not to do it. I don't know, the comprehension, I mean, I'm trying to get comprehension and reasoning are different. Comprehension is the understanding of something without the need to think about it. Well, that's direct perception. Yes. So, Samael says that uh, to reason is a great crime against the innermost. Because God does not think. But in everyday affairs. In everyday affairs, we need to learn how to resolve our issues without the ego involved. Because the ego thinks, puts thoughts in our minds, impulses in our body to act. But comprehension is when we don't, when we know how to act without thinking. And this is the demarcation between an angel and a demon. Precisely. So as we learn how to act without thinking, that is how we enter into the path of concentration. So I want to emphasize something that Samael and Vior stated, which is something that typically uh, many students and instructors tend to ignore. The Gnostic must first attain the ability to stop the course of his thoughts, the capacity to not think, 
Indeed, only the one who achieves that capacity will hear the voice of the silence. When we sit, we should not think. But if we're thinking, we're distracted, we're not even able to enter into concentration. That's the, the important point. Usually, we will attempt to practice with the mind churning, distraught, agitated. But in order to really receive that insight, which is the voice of the silence, which is the direct action of your being within your psyche, the voice of silence, meaning the impulse of your, of your innermost divinity within you, you can't let your mind interfere. It's a type of experience in which you don't think, you know. Because God knows without thinking, doesn't rationalize. And so we have here in this image the Buddha with his hand, hand up and a hand down, referring to the need to receive. Usually with the left hand we receive the forces uh, of divinity. And the right hand is expressed in action. The left refers to uh, left hand of the body, the lunar receptive nature of ourselves. Right is action. And uh, this brute word Buddh in the word Buddha is uh, cognizance, awareness, which knows how to receive and knows how to act, but this is not an intellectual process. It's uh, intuitive. But we have to learn how to act from our being without thinking about it. Usually the being gives us a hunch, an insight. We feel that uh, inclination that comes from somewhere, but we don't know where, usually. Where we know in our hearts an action, an action is right or wrong. And yet the mind then conceptualizes it. Well, I should do this because I have this reason. And then the intellect is debating. Insight is lightning. You know it's wrong. But then the mind says, well... And starts to debate. So the lightning emerges, but the thunder of the mind comes after. This is the demarcation. We can only in, develop that as we learn to not think. Doesn't mean that we become stupid, meaning we don't know how to do our daily obligations and affairs. It means that we do it consciously, using our intellectual brain under the uh, influence of our inner God. So the first step is. Don't think. And then learn to concentrate. When the Gnostic disciple attains the capacity to not think, then he must learn to concentrate his thoughts on only one thing. That's when uh, real concentration comes into play. We need a certain degree of uh, serenity of mind to, med- to really concentrate. This is the spiritual practice, what you're saying here, but I'm just trying to get For everyday practice, people just perceive, you know, it's a different thing, the mundane things. What people do, you need some reasoning based on your education, which like, let's say, on an everyday job. You've got constants, you have variables. And that's what they do say in R&D. You're comparing them, you're running tests. This to me, I would tell me, this is definitely the spiritual. But as far as the mundane, as far as doing natural thinking, things like that, that might be an issue in certain areas. We need to learn to use our, our personality according to the will of our God. So we need personality to subsist in this society. We need to be trained, to have a vocation, to have certain intellectual knowledge. But it doesn't mean that we use our, let our defects use that knowledge in a subjective way. Instead, we use that with the being use that insight to direct our course. Well, for, for moral, uh, terrorists, 
And in our daily life, our daily life is our practice. That's what we need to really analyze and understand. If we sit to meditate for an hour, yet all day, the other 23 hours, we're, we're daydreaming, arguing, fighting, debating, having conflicts. That's a lot of energy that's going contrary to our practice. That's just why Samael and Vero said, esoteric discipline has, or these activities have to saturate every instant of our life. So our practice is at work with an intellectual job or with working with other people in a very tough environment. Our spiritual practice is when we relate to other human beings. Every instant is our spiritual work. If we have the concept that our meditation, our practice is when we sit in our, at our home, isolated from our experience, then we will get nowhere. But if we let our life be a training ground to developing genuine concentration, then your understanding will, or our understanding will be very robust. So we develop that capacity to not think, pradyahara, which leads to dharana, concentration, focusing only on one thing. Then the third step is correct meditation. This brings the first flashes of the new consciousness in the mind. So real meditation is when you receive information in a new way, when you understand something spontaneously. No thinking involved. Your insight can come as a, as a concept of the mind, but it is not egotistical. The way to di- differentiate between what is the superior messages of the being from the subjective notions of our ego, we need to develop a lot of clarity, which is why the Master Samael says, we must learn to carefully separate the smoke from the flames. Flames are insight, the being, the virtues, where the f- smoke is our mind. You've got to really learn how to sift through that in every instant. If what you want is to really develop the capacity to concentrate. And then when, able, when we're able to focus on one element at a time without being distracted from our purpose, that's when we receive new insight. That's when we are meditating. And then the fourth step is contemplation, ecstasy or samadhi. This is the stage of, the, of uh, Turiya, perfect clairvoyance, in which there's perception without any filter. It is super-consciousness. No ego involved. We can have this experience in our daily life. You don't need to have an experience out of the body in astral projection to experience uh, the super-conscious nature of the being. Perception that is beyond uh, the mind. Kundalini should lead to Samadhi and developing Kundalini spiritually. Swami Shivananda states that... uh, one cannot have any experiences without the kundalini awakened. Now, this does not mean that the kundalini has to be fully awakened through sexual magic, but you can awaken sparks through runes, through transmutation. And that energy in motion, will, we, which we need, will awaken the consciousness to have that experience. So we need that force. We, we cannot do it without the Divine Mother. Now to explain... Uh, Flaws in relation to our concentration when we sit to practice. I'm going to emphasize the teaching from Buddha Maitreya. Maitreya is a title, but was given to a certain master in the past who gave this teaching of uh, the nature of concentration and his separation of the middle from the extremes. So we're going to explain a little bit about what the common flaws to learning to concentrate are so that we can examine our practice. 
Laziness, forgetting the object, excitement or laxity in the mind. Laziness being the mind is dull, which is, for most people, a common problem. Two, forgetting the object of concentration. We sit to practice, we forget what we're doing. We don't remember, we, 20 minutes, 30 minutes go by, we don't remember anything. We sit, we, was I, I was supposed to meditate? What, what, what was I doing? We forget what we're focusing on. Excitement or laxity is the mind that is agitated with, an, with either negative emotions or laxity, meaning the mind is dull or there's certain egotistical elements which are influencing our perception, making it uh, dull, relating to laziness. Also, failing to apply their antidotes when excitement or laxity arises. So in Buddhist teaching, there are certain remedies we use that Tsongkhapa explained. When we are medit- when we're concentrating, where if the mind becomes dull, there are certain things that we can focus our attention on in order to remedy that fault. And the instant it emerges... Likewise with uh, excitement in the mind. Dullness, apathy, or agitation. The mind has to be uh, equilibrated. And we'll explain more about that. But then there's uh, the last step, which is excessive exertion. Meaning, we're trying to, when the mind has reached certain degrees of stability, it's it's pointless to exert effort at this point. Which is really pertaining to the highest degrees of concentration, which... You don't need effort to maintain it. All you need is familiarization with that state. Paul, can I just add something? In relation to this, I believe someone told us, and maybe you several, why are you doing this? Because the, the, uh, people measure the breath in one, two, three, four, five. As long as it's rhythmical, they say, you can feel the rhythmical breath. This will be an aid to this, to help calm the mind and to bring the serenity. Once the breath is in, in unison, We talk about uh, when we work with breath, pranayama, mantra, that, become, that can be an object of our concentration. So those energies, the vital forces, by awakening the sparks of the kundalini, we can have uh, insight. And I'm going to explain precisely your point in relation to this slide. So there are eight antidotes to flawed concentration that Tsongkhapa explains. And this is an image of Tsongkhapa in meditation, who Master Samael stated was the reincarnation of the Buddha. We're uh, floating in the clouds. He's meditating next to his disciples. Above him is uh, the heavenly city of the gods, the Buddhas, or the celestial Jerusalem of revelations. Below is the waters, and we see many flowers, many virtues of the being. You have an experience in the astral plane where they show you virtues. I mean, I'm show you uh, flowers. They're showing you the virtues of the, your, inner, your inner God inside you. Beautiful flowers, roses, being representations of virtue are, is due to the fact that the plant elementals have not left Eden yet. They transmute the energies. So we see roses, flowers, immaculate clouds, and the waters. This realization appears as a result of working with our water, our seminal force, our sexual energy. And so, uh, one of the best methods we could say to countering laziness when we're trying to concentrate is to transmute. 
Use your breath to mantralize. Inri or iao. Many mantras we use to sublimate that energy. So Sankapa explained that to counter laziness, we need to develop faith, aspiration, effort, and pliancy. Faith is in relation in Buddhist doctrine to the understanding of the nature of mind, the certainty of and the, of the benefits of meditative st- stabilization. We have to really comprehend the benefit of when the mind is really serene and we genuinely perceive from a state of peace what that uh, state is like. If we don't uh, have that experience, from, if we don't taste that experience directly, there's no striving. So faith does not mean in, in the Christian sense of belief, but in Buddhist doctrine, it's understanding of the... Genuine, pristine, cognitive nature of mind without flaws. We, have to have faith, we really have to have faith in uh, this teaching and about the transformation of our mind. Otherwise, we won't do it. If the mind is lazy, we have to really understand what are the benefits of having a stable mind and actually see it. If our mind is chaotic and we don't see what the benefit is, we won't strive. And so willpower pertains to uh, the need to control the mind through uh, Tifereth controlling Netzach. So we use our will every time we do runes, pranayama, transmutation, sexual magic. And so to develop faith and uh, effort in our practice, applying more effort to really concentrate, develop more pliancy in the mind, more uh, stability in the body, we work with aspiration to aspire. Through inspiration, we inhale the prana and the nostrils, and then we bring that energy inward and upward to aspire, bring it up to our mind to illuminate it. That develops pliancy. And in Buddhist terms, pliancy refers to the flexibility of the consciousness to perceive. It's the dynamic of seeing our mind as it is, and all the structures of the, uh, the ego that the resistance it poses towards our effort because when we direct our attention towards it the ego fights back to not be seen and in the revolution of the dialectic this is a structural and transactional analysis we have to see the structures of the ego when they emerge in our mind and transactions pertain to uh, such as at a bank depositing checks money accounts there's always movement in the mind. Pliancy pertains to understanding those structures in our mind as they appear, as they emerge, and how we're flexible in our perception. We're not distracted. Like we're practicing martial arts. We have stability in our body, and we're calmly fighting an enemy with composure. This is pliancy. Effort pertains to having strength in our will, which is pertaining to our consciousness, conscious will. So some, some benefits I personally have uh, experienced with effort is listening to a, a really powerful piece of classical music. For instance, I listened to Mars by Gustav Holst, who is a master. And uh, he's, 
explaining the effort we need as a consciousness to fight against the, the generation of the mind. And this is really the power of Samael, his angel of war. But also our being, our innermost, relates to Mars. Strength can inspire us to, when we understand the message, to really concentrate. And so for forgetfulness, we need, if we're forgetting that we're practicing, we need to be, develop more mindfulness throughout the day. Self-observation is perceiving ourselves in a given instant. Mindfulness is that self-observation throughout an entire day. So if we keep forgetting that we're meditating or concentrating, our daily, we have to really be vigilant in our day-to-day practice. Our daily practice has to be our spiritual practice. You know, I find a daily practice sometimes, it becomes like out of nowhere, stupid thing, like you said, extraneous thoughts that I never intended to have come into me while I'm meditating. But they come and it really pisses me off. Then what I do is I, I meditate, it really does. Uh, I just say, right way. And that eliminates it. I know the need comes at the moment. Where it comes from, I don't know. I, can't, I don't know where it comes from. At that moment, more and more, with your instruction, with, with his books, you got to catch it true at the moment because it's so insidious. I don't know where it comes from. I didn't mean it to come. I'm meditating. But I found it sneaky. It could take you away from the meditation. And we're going to talk about that specifically. But the thing is, if you feel that thought come up, catch it. Usually we have these elements. We, catch, we, we, we experience something we don't like in our mind. And then another thought emerges. Well, I don't like that. <laughs> and then other thoughts as well, you know, this person, this one was wrong, but it really, it's still it's subjective. It's still the mind. So, the solution is to uh, develop vigilance. So, what you're experiencing is excitement in the mind, where you see a thought that emerges that is spontaneous. You don't know where it comes from. It disturbs you, and then there's the reaction. I don't want to see this. I don't want this. That's another ego in the mind that uh, is excitement. The solution is to develop vigilance. As you said, you need to perceive that element as it arises. Otherwise, if, it, if the, it's passed into our screen of our experience, has entered our intellectual brain and it's passed already, we've missed the moment. So you've got to be in vigil, meaning awake. Not looking at other things, but examining the thought as it emerges. And we'll explain about, more about that. But laxity is, uh, again, if the mind is dull and we feel... Uh, Sleepy as a consciousness, we need greater clarity in our perception. If our, if our, if our sight, internal sight is befuddled, where we, we have thoughts and memories and desires, but we don't really see their nature, we need vigilance, which is introspection, perception. We have to develop our clarity, which the best way to develop vigilance is you have to exercise that muscle. So transmutation is not enough. You can have energy, but if we don't uh, know how to harness that energy then uh, the ego takes it. But we need, we need force, but we need to have discipline, energy and will, in harmony. The final antidote to uh, inappropriate application of exertion or effort is equanimity. And this pertains to really the higher degrees of concentration in which you don't need effort. So to exert the mind is to disturb the mind and you can lose the experience. So when you have greater stillness pertaining to the 8th and ninth degrees of concentration, you don't need to exert any effort. It's effortless. Pertaining to the ninth degree, the 8th degree, 
We'll explain about that. You need some uh, effort. But equanimity. Don't need to uh, apply anything, any antidote. So we included some images. Again, the central image of uh, the diagram we're going to explain more in detail. Some of you may be familiar with Plato's allegory of the cave. In uh, Book 7 of his Republic, he explain, Plato, Master Plato explains the nature of the path to truth and understanding, which is synonymous with this map of the nine degrees or stages of a concentration in Buddhism. Likewise, we have Christ who is ascended, representing any initiate who's fully mastered that state, such as the Tibetan yogi who is... Uh, Flying in the clouds. Those of you who are not familiar with uh, the Republic, um, there's a myth of the cave or allegory of the cave pertaining to any initiate who is ascending from the subconsciousness towards supraconsciousness. In this image, we have people should be enchained by their necks and their legs, their hands, to a wall. Behind them is a fire that burns. And uh, these people see nothing but darkness. Or, at most, they see people who are passing between the fire and the wall, carrying images or carrying objects on their heads, pottery, clay. And these images project their shadows on the wall. So these people who are in chains, they only see darkness or they see shadows on the wall. And this is all they know. So to reiterate what these states are, we talk about four states of consciousness in the Gnostic Doctrine. We have ikasya pertaining to sleep of a barbaric nature, complete unconsciousness, meaning just darkness. We look at our mind, we see nothing. There's, we know there's thoughts and feelings and emotions and surges of desires, but we don't really see where they're coming from. This is the darkness that is mentioned in the book of Genesis. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, floated above those waters to transform them. The images on the wall are dreams. Pistis. Sleep with dreams pertains to the fact that we see images and we experience life. We have ideas in our mind, concepts. We have thoughts, feelings, and expectations, longings. But they're not objective. When you really examine their nature, they're devoid of any substantiality. That's pistis. People's beliefs about religion, faith, mind, ideas, the way they interact in society. But we see in this image that there's a superior way out of that. Um, there's a woman on the ground who was unchained, or a person from, who was unchained and forced to see the fire directly. That fire is the energy of Christ and pertains to the third state of consciousness known as dianoia. Dianoia means revision of beliefs, revision of pistis. This is perception of the mind without the filters of uh, desire. Dianoia is when we are examining our mind and we see that we are not the mind. We perceive the mind that is something distinct and separate from us with thoughts, feelings, sensations. But we have to be forced to experience that. Meaning divinity pushes us to really examine what the shadows on the wall are, which is our previous conceptions of ourself, 
our ideas, our culture, our language, our pride, our faith, our prior faith, our hatred, our vanity. And so this guru takes this initiate and out of the cave. This winding path out of the cave is precisely this diagram we see here. In the myth of the, or the allegory of the cave, the initiate is forced out of the cave through a winding path until finally reaching outdoors, until experiencing the stars of the sky. And for the first time, this person who's lived his entire life in the cave, he sees the sun for the first time in the dawn, which is overwhelming. This is, an, this is a representation of nous, the high state of consciousness, superconsciousness. Nous pertains to perception of divinity, to perceive as God perceives. And our God is inside, so when we unite as a soul with our inner divinity, the soul is one with divinity. It's integral to that. And one experiences perception, life, from the perspective of the being. That's the sun, the solar logos. And likewise in this image, this monk is training to get out of the cave, going up this path, until finally reaching meditative serenity at this stage. And when walking on this rainbow bridge, one is in samadhi. Those of you who are familiar with uh, Richard Wagner's opera Das Rheingold, which we will watch, the gods tread on this, this path of the rainbow to the city of the gods, Valhalla, Hall of the Warrior, who has defeated himself in battle. And so, to explain how this Buddhist uh, glyph pertains to the myth of the allegory of the cave, uh, we'll explain some of the symbols. But the fact that uh, this path is winding is the work of dianoia. We're constantly having to revise our concepts of ourselves. When we observe our mind for what it is, we see that we are not who we thought we were. We have to re- change our self-concept. Master Samuel explains that dianoia pertains to cultural intellectual synthesis, spiritual knowledge, revision of beliefs, direct perception of what is real. This is awakened consciousness. And that's dianoia. And that changes our beliefs about who we were as a person. We, we cease to think in the common way we used to. But dianoia also, uh, in this path of concentration, is pertaining to uh, intellectual knowledge of a superior type. So when Master Samael explains there's a cultural, intellectual, spiritual knowledge, this is not the intellectual knowledge of the ego, but it's a new type of understanding in our, in our mental center, which is superior abstract, a mind that can conceptualize superior concepts without struggling between the battle opposites in the mind. That's like an epiphany. That's what epiphany ever faced to. The spark of joy the soul feels, the pliancy of the mind, Buddhist doctrine of mind, which is free of distraction. So, we have here this image of a monk chasing an elephant. That elephant is the the mind. And with the fact that it's black in the beginning is the dullness of our mind. We, we, see, we don't see anything. We don't understand what our mind is. There's a fire here on this path referring to uh, 
the type of willpower we need to dominate the mind. So the monk is uh, chasing after uh, this elephant. Likewise, there's a monkey following before the elephant. The monkey is a restless mind. The monkey is always grabbing things. The intellect, our desires, our emotions is always picking, trying to satiate itself with, uh, with uh, desire. Notice that this fire gets smaller the further up the path one goes because the amount of effort or engagement one needs with the mind becomes lessened the more that the mind is in control. In the beginning, it takes a tremendous effort to remember that we're practicing, that we're concentrating, and to not get uh, distracted. Likewise, the fact that uh, the elephant starts to gain color becomes white, means that there's gradual purification of the mind. There's greater insight, clarity. Likewise, until the monk, with a rope in his hand representing uh, mindfulness, and a hook, vigilance, gets a hold of the, uh, the elephant and is starting to turn it towards his direction, meaning the mind is becoming subdued. What's important to note is as this process uh, occurs, the elephant becomes purified of his dullness. The monkey is tamed until the elephant is completely stabilized and the meditator is fully in control of the mind and enters into the superior worlds. We also have in this image uh, a silk cloth representing the sense of touch, some fruit representing taste, a perfumed conch representing smell, Symbols representing hearing and a mirror representing sight. Because it's through our five senses is how we learn to develop concentration. It's not by running away from life, but from using our daily life to develop that concentration. Make it rigorous. And until we reach in the end, the rainbow path of uh, Valhalla, towards the city of the gods, one can um, enter into higher degrees of uh, calm abiding. So here, what I'm going to explain now is the nine stages of concentration that lead to calm abiding. As the Dalai Lama explained, calm abiding pertains to what one attains after the ninth degree of concentration, which is represented by the monk flying in the air and the monk with a sword and uh, riding an elephant. That sword of fire is wisdom. It also represents the kundalini of any master. It's that energy that gives one the root cognizance of perceiving, cutting through delusion. So if you see images of Manjushri in Buddhism, that sword cuts through the distraction of the mind. And that image of uh, Tsongkhapa, I didn't explain, but there was also a sword of fire to his right. And there was a book on the left pertaining to the book of uh, studying one's life directly, also studying the methods that lead to that insight. So study or method and wisdom. Wisdom is the sword. Method is the, the study. So we need a combination of studying the steps of concentration to, along with our practical work, the sword, if what we want is to develop that union. I'm going to explain the... There's a bunny there. Yeah, the, and the, the bunny represents uh, laziness. A subtle form of laziness that appears when in the mind when we think we're when we think we know what we're doing. 
when we're trying to concentrate. I'll explain that specific detail. So the first degree is mental placement, which uh, is the beginning of when we sit to practice and we can't remember that we're meditating, that we're concentrating. We sit, we sit down and we know that we're, we're, we should be practicing, but we don't remember what we're doing. Before this, uh, you could say stage zero is uh, a wild mind, meaning there's no control whatsoever. This is the state of every human being on this planet. But when we begin to start to concentrate, we're placing our mind on the practice. And we realize we can't concentrate. The elephant is fully running around, but we notice, that the, we notice this fact. That's the distinction here. And so the monk is chasing after the elephant with a hook representing vigilance or wisdom, insight, and the rope representing mindfulness, remembrance of divinity and moment to moment. So uh, the elephant of the mind wandering wildly is to be securely bound with the rope of mindfulness to the pillar of an object of meditation, gradually to be tamed with the hook of wisdom. This is Bhava, uh, Bhava Vivika, the Buddhist master. Now, um, the object of our concentration can be a mantra, an image of a Buddha, an image of a master, such as I personally meditate on the image of Master Samael to invoke him. And when my mind's been stable and clear, I sense him in my home with me. And in many other places, when I, help, when I put that image in my mind, I focus on that as an object of concentration to receive his help. But also you can meditate on the mind itself, which is a teaching of Dzogchen or Mahamudra, the great seal or uh, great perfection teachings of the Nyingma tradition of Tibetan Buddhism and I believe the Galutpa, there's four schools of Tibetan Buddhism we talk about. So you can meditate on the mind. Let your own mind be the object of concentration. Observe your mind. What is it like? Let that be your focus. You can develop great stability of concentration that way. Or... You can take a, a visualization of a stone or a pebble or a piece of art. If you're going to choose artwork, I would suggest something simple in the beginning. Uh, nothing elaborate. Usually to, memorize, to visualize all the details of an object, of a mandala, like a sacred image, a painting in Buddhism or a painting of Christianity, it, to master the visualization of that image takes a lot of effort. So I would recommend in the beginning, start with something simple. And then as your capacity to visualize and concentrate grows, expand that. And then choose images from that are more complicated. For instance, uh, comes to my mind uh, something that uh, could be useful is that when you are med- when you're concentrating, if you if you have an experience in the eternal planes of an image, such as you speak with your divine mother. Let that, be your, let that be your object of concentration. You sit to meditate, imagine your divine mother as you saw her. That will be more personal to you. More, uh, more, uh, you have more investment in that practice that way. So that's mental placement. We forget, what we're do- we forget that we're meditating. We realize that we can't remember what we're doing. And so the type of engagement we need the type of effort we need to really get in control of this element of the mind is tightly focused engagement, meaning this is the Buddhist term of a lot of effort to control the mind, to catch up, run after that elephant. And um, the solution, basically uh, Buddha Maitreya, who gave this teaching, uh, 
he explained that you need to, uh, there's certain uh, antidotes to each stage. And it's important to know what these are. And so this is not something intellectual. This is something very practical to help you understand your, your own experience, your own practice. So he says that for mental placement, you need to, the solution is to hear the teachings. Hear the teachings of mindfulness. Really hear them and study them and apply them. If what we want to do is uh, understand the fact, understand what mental placement is, we're, to, re, to even realize that the mind is out of control, we need to hear the teaching to do so, to change that. Close placement or fixation with some continuity. Notice that the elephant starts to get a little bit white. The monkey too. The dull mind and the restless mind are being, uh, there's, there's a slight purification there. This is when, when we're concentrating, we have some flashes of insight. Minor. We tend to forget what we're doing more, but we still have some insight about, well, understanding what the object of concentration is. The monk still has to chase after the elephant to still gain control. There's more forgetfulness than there is remembrance. And the flames become, uh, the flames represent our effort that we need, the type of willpower we need to gain control. So the fire is still very intense here, but it diminishes as uh, the further along one ascends the path. Patch placement, the monk is finally with the rope of, uh, rope of mindfulness gaining a hold of the elephant and has turned the head towards him. Meaning, there are more periods of remembrance and control than there are forgetfulness. This is called patch-like placement or patch placement, like putting patches of a fabric on a cloth to fix up holes. One has more control and one is basically patching their awareness into the, uh, the practice there's still periods of forgetfulness, but there's more remembrance than there is forgetfulness. This is a, a big improvement. The monkey also becomes more purified. The elephant's starting to become tamed. This is the beginning of becoming tamed. We remember that we're concentrating more than we are forgetting. Close placement, a good fixation, uh, is uh, a period in our concentration in which we don't forget what we're doing. If we want to meditate on the ego, to annihilate the ego, we need to develop this. Reach at least some stability in this degree. Where we don't for, when we sit to practice and concentrate, we don't forget what we're doing. The problem with this stage is uh, there's, an, there's a rabbit on the elephant, which represents laziness. Meaning, when we, start to, when we remember that we're practicing, there's a sentiment or, or uh, influence in the mind that makes us feel that we know what we're doing. Oh, I'm remembering that I'm, I remember that I'm meditating, and then the there's an uh, interference or distraction from the mind that is subtle that make, convinces us that, we know, that we're practicing effectively when it's really a distraction. That's what the rabbit represents. And those of the fire is diminishing, meaning the amount of effort we need is becoming less. How do you get rid of the rabbit? So, uh, this is good. So, I'm doing the right thing. That's the rabbit. So one develops... Uh, Mindfulness. So for the third and fourth degrees, the solution to that, to those states, patch-like placement and uh, close fixation, a good placement of the mind, is developing more remembrance throughout the day. Mindfulness. Meaning self-observing and remembering our being more and perceiving more. So the solution to, or better said, uh, to explain more, the subduing, attaining, and becoming disciplined. At this point... One is dealing with more... The fact that we don't forget what we're practicing 
there's, we're dealing with more subtle forms of distraction in the mind where we don't forget what we're doing, but still there's laxity and excitement in the mind, agitation or laziness in the mind and subtle levels that we need to address. The solution to that, as we see the rabbit there, that thinks it is a symbol of, uh, again, laziness, that thinks we know knows what we're doing, is to develop uh, insight. Specifically, uh, in this stage, uh, referring to awareness or introspection, as Buddha Maitreya teaches, we need to uh, develop our clarity of perception more, insight. At this point, what makes the fifth degree different from the fourth degree is that in the fifth degree, instead of focusing on the object of concentration more, we're focusing on how we perceive. So in the fourth degree, we're beginning the mental placement, we're trying to remember that we're practicing. Second, we have some insights, brief flashes of insight into the object of concentration. Patch-like placement, we remember to concentrate more than we forget. Fourth degree, we don't forget the object of concentration. This is all about the object. In the fifth degree, we're now focusing more on our perception. How do we perceive the object of concentration? How do how, we observe how we observe? In some studies, we call it metacognition. The solution to this is uh, we need to develop uh, more awareness or introspection. So the difference of introspection to mindfulness has to do with the quality of our perception. Mindfulness is remembrance throughout the day, but introspection is that we're sharpening that. Applying antidotes when we need to. When if the mind is uh, agitated or relaxed, we direct our attention to that, return to the object of concentration. Also, the monkey you now notices becoming tame, is following the is following the elephant, and there's half purity, half dullness in this image of the elephant. Pacification and becoming peaceful. The mind is uh, becoming very crisp. There's greater serenity of mind. One is still dealing with some subtle forms of uh, laxity and excitement, which uh, we have to carefully address. And at this point, what makes the sixth degree different from the fifth degree is that if we overapply the remedy to his excitement in the sixth degree, we don't want to heighten the mind more. We want to become pacified, more clear. And by antidotes, referring to... Uh, countering the influences of laziness or excitement. Such as with a, if the mind is excited, one can reflect temporarily on the nature of the, imp- the impermanent nature of that element of the ego that merges in our mind or the impermanence of life and death, of fatality, to curb the excitement of that mind. Or if there's laziness, we apply effort. But here we don't want to apply so much effort, you know, we don't want to over apply the remedy so that the, mind, the waters of the mind become agitated. But we do want to uh, become more pacified. So the seventh degree is very important. The previous degrees we were discussing uh, from the third degree to the sixth degree, we're referring to uh, a type of engagement with the mind, which is called. Uh, in Buddhist terms, interrupted engagement, meaning we're applying effort, but our efforts are always being interrupted by distractions to one degree or another. Whether gross in the lesson to the fourth degree, when we don't forget to practice, towards the sixth degree, as we're becoming more pacified, we're still dealing with distractions. But in this degree, 
Complete pacification of becoming very pacified. This is a state of concentration in which you see distractions before they even arise. So you see a thought before it even appears. You see from where it comes from. This is a very clear and sharp cognizance. The elephant is, full, is following now the, the, the monk. He doesn't have to use any force. Still, he's using, he's using effort, to lead, uh, effort to a degree to lead the elephant after him. But the mind is pacified, meaning one, is not over, one still has distractions, but one catches them before they even appear. This is going to be very hard to understand, but you may have the experience, such as out of the body, when you're meditating, when you see the ego before it, before it even projects its films on the screen of our mind. So there's a Sufi saying by Al-Kushari um, that emphasizes this point. It is said, silence for the common people is with their tongues. Silence for the Gnostics is with their hearts. And silence for lovers is with, rest- is with restraining the stray thoughts that come to their innermost beings. So at this point, you catch the mind before it even acts. So it's very sharp. I've experienced this uh, in different occasions, such as out of the body, receiving teachings where I could sense my ego was about to act before, I, before it even happened. So it's a very sharp cognizance that we need to cultivate. The eighth degree, single-pointed attention. We chose a, I chose an image of a samurai because the type of attention we need is a, is a sword. One-pointed means there are no distractions. There's no subtlety, no subtle uh, excitement, no subtle laxity in the mind. And uh, if you're familiar with uh, really the spiritual culture of the samurai, which is Bushido, way of the warrior, really their training was such that they eliminated all fear or excitement from their minds before they went into battle. This was before this tradition degenerated. For instance, the samurai would um, symbolically commit harikiri or seppuku to kill themselves. When this tradition degenerated, they actually they did it literally. But this is symbolic of the need to die in the ego. So with one point in perception, one can deal with one's mind, one's enemies, without being distracted. With perfect awareness... Or close to perfect, because there's a degree higher than this. The fact that a single point in attention or concentration, there isn't even any subtlety or laxity in the mind at all. There's no distractions. But still, it's not perfect because we need some effort to maintain that state. Lastly, balance placement or fixed absorption, meditative equipoise, pertains to the mind uh, has reached its natural state. This doesn't mean that the ego has been eliminated. It means the mind is, retur- is settled to its original point of being. No distractions. It takes no effort to maintain this state. One just simply has to be familiar with how the consciousness functions at this degree. There's a Sufi code that explains this very well. According to etymology, the disciple is he who possesses will. Just as the knower is he who possesses knowledge, because the word belongs to the class of derived nouns. But in Sufi usage, the disciple is he who possesses no will at all. So in the lower degrees, we needed effort, we needed will to act, to really control the mind. But in the higher degrees, to really be a Sufi, to be pure in mind, 
Sufi means Suf means purity in Arabic. We're referring to wool, like clothing, which is a symbol of purity. You don't need any effort to be a, to real be a Sufi. You don't to have that realization. There's no effort involved. Exactly, which is why it says in this quote, here one who does not abandon will cannot be called a disciple. Just as linguistically, one who does not possess will cannot be called a disciple. So to reach this point, you need will, effort. But when you reach that point where the mind is completely equilibrated, you don't need any effort. You just need to be familiar with that state. And uh, the elephant is completely tamed. One just needs to be settled in that state. Now, um, this ninth degree meditative equipose pertains to uh, Tifereth and Kabbalah. Tifereth is this human consciousness or soul, which we call willpower or human will. It seems ironic that real willpower requires no effort, but it's true. If you're in that internal planes in a very clear, lucid state, you don't need effort to maintain it when it's very fully developed. But if you find that you're struggling to maintain that state, then you need some effort. But all it takes to maintain the state is to be equilibrated. To elaborate on this teaching that Buddha Maitreya taught, I'll relate to an experience that I had in the astral plane uh, many years ago where my being taught me this before I even knew about uh, these uh, nine stages. Specifically, I uh, woke up in the astral plane and I uh, went outside my home and I invoked my innermost, my God, and I dove into the earth, into the crust to go towards the center of the earth to be with my being. And the astral plane is material. It's like the physical plane, but of a more subtle nature. So you can fly through walls or go through the earth and breathe in water, fly through the seas. So I went to the earth and I entered into darkness. And uh, at that moment, I felt the presence of my inner being. And I heard a breathing. And this symbol of the breath pertains to the spirit because the innermost is a presence, is a force. The breath of God, which the Sufis talk about, nafas, or ruach in Hebrew. And terribly divine presence. In that moment, my God showed me something where, if you can imagine a silent film, such as when a camera lens opens, to see an image emerge from the center of a black screen, to see a scene that immediately played out. There was a yellow car skidding like a like a race car souped up immediately driving off wild toward the distance and I knew intuitively I knew I had to catch it so I uh, flew after it and I knew this was a test for my being and I took a lot of effort to catch up to it it was I was fighting really to catch after it but then I saw that the car was starting to slow down I was gaining ground. I had to put less effort to get to it. And so uh, eventually I was victorious and I, the car was starting to stop. I came up to it and uh, I opened, uh, the car opened and the, a man, a bald man came out. 
And I asked him, are you my innermost? And he says, no, I'm just a representation. And I woke up. So a yellow, the car was yellow. Uh, yellow is a symbol of the mental body, the mind, knowledge. And that car, that car was my mental body driving around chaotic, crazy. And it took a lot of effort to catch up to it. So the fact that, so that teaching was pertaining to the need for me to catch after my elephant. And it took less effort eventually the closer I got until the point where the car stopped on its own and I was able to talk to the driver. And the fact that the driver was uh, bald is really a representation of the ego because the ego is uh, bald from fornication. Baldness is a symbol of uh, the mind that fornicates. And uh, so I caught up with the car and uh, it was a symbol of... Uh, Obtaining these nine degrees. So I'm going to provide you this, this glyph. Which is uh, pretty much everything we just discussed. So it explains here the, the, what is the characteristic of each stage. What is the type of engagement we need when we concentrate. And also the power that is needed. So uh, we explain how in mental placement we can't remember that we're meditating. So we need to uh, use a lot of effort and to really uh, hear the teachings, understand them. Continue placement, flashes, moments of comprehension. Still need a lot of force and engagement to catch up with the mind. And at this point, we need to contemplate the teaching. And here we need to uh, really understand the value of the teaching from experience. And not to uh, absorb it just intellectually. Likewise, we have, I won't uh, go through the entire list, but you'll have here basically everything we discussed in a glyph to help with uh, understanding these stages. Something else I also want to mention in relation to the ninth degree, meditative equipose. Um, In this state, we don't need to apply any effort. And uh, another experience that I had where... Recently, I was uh, I found myself looking at the on the astral plane, looking at the horizon. My practice I've been doing is I'm doing a lot of the mantra SM Hon to clear my mind. And I found myself in the astral plane. It was before dawn. There was some light on the horizon, and there was a sky, which was had some clouds, but it was very clear. I saw the stars, and. Uh, to see stars in the internal planes means the mind is, is clear and divinity is expressing, is present. I didn't need to apply any effort at that point. I was just awake and I, they were showing me, this is you know when you are transmuting and you're clearing your mind, let that be your object of concentration. This is your mental state. To see stars is really a, a good thing. and Because uh, if you see stars, they're showing you your... Uh, you're being connected with your divinity. Stars pertain to the Divine Mother, Nut, in Egyptian mythology. Um, but I also saw something very interesting there, which is relevant to this uh, topic. When I was looking in the stars, I saw a ship, a spaceship, like a boat. I saw it, at first I, I almost was going to ignore it, but it was hovering on the horizon, and uh, I saw the ship was just floating there. And telepathically, I asked, you know, 
Come take me. I want to be helped. And then immediately the ship came. Tele- you know, with a, like a magnetic force pulled me on board and I was on this ship. So to be invited on a spaceship in the astral plane is to the divinity inviting you to uh, go to a higher level of being. Asking you to ascend from, your level, from an inferior level, like in the allegory of the cave, to see the stars for the first time. Divinity. So that's a state of noetic consciousness. Noose, where you're perceiving divinity directly. Steiner said that the heart relates to the sun, and the mind, the brain, relates to the starry heavens. So the mind, uh, when your mind is illuminated, if you're clear, the natural state of the mind is the stars, divinity. So if you see that, that means they're they're showing you your. If you, in the astral plane, if they show, if you ask, "How am I doing?" and they show you, you keep seeing the sky. The nature of the sky is the nature of your mind. If it's cloudy with storms, that's your mind churning. But if you see stars, that means your mind is so clear that for once your divinity can help you. And, but the fact that the ship came out of the... I was invited by this ship was pointing that if you really want to get help, you got to really reach that state. That's my point. The point is, uh, if you want to really... you know, we, The thing is, we receive help all the time. We don't see it. But when you're in the ninth degree of concentration, which is seeing the stars clearly, then you can receive more help. Represented by the image uh, of the top of the Tibetan uh, mural. So if we really want to be aware of who is helping us to have that clarity, reach the ninth degree in which you don't need effort to, or exertion. And which you see clearly. So it's from the ninth degree of concentration in which you, uh, in which uh, you enter, into, you can enter into higher degrees of understanding in the internal planes. The Buddhist doctrine and the teachings of Plato are not the only ones that explain this. But we find this teaching in the Odyssey by Homer, Greek poet. In the Odyssey, there's a story of how after the Trojan War, Menelaus, as we've seen this image, the king was returning back to Sparta, I believe it's Sparta, where he was shipwrecked, or he was basically stranded at, stranded at sea without wind, and he was trying to discover which god was punishing him so that he can make appeasement and ritual to uh, produce his, his return home. And so he was confronted by Idotia, which is a sea goddess, a sea nymph who explained to him, my father Proteus, as you see in this image on the right, the god Proteus can help you return and will prophecy for you if you catch him. And so in, the, in this poem, there's a scene where King Menelaus is, is uh, disguised as a seal, as a creature of the sea, in order to ambush Proteus and to wrestle him to the ground to get him to provide answers to his questions. And so, Menelaus states to Idotia, uh, the daughter of Proteus, Proteus is this myth is a god of the sea who can shapeshift. And Idotia, the daughter, says, if you want to catch, if you want to get the answers you need, you need to catch Proteus. Proteus is going to shapeshift on you, change into lions, into sea, into sea creatures, into beasts, into fowl, into all sorts of serpents, into creatures, and you have to, no matter what he turns into, you got to hold on to it. 
means to how when we are concentrating, when we're concentrating and controlling our mind, the mind shapeshifts, desires, thoughts, beliefs, ideas, concepts. Proteus in our mind is always shifting. But if you want to get the answers you seek, you got to hold on for dear life and use that will until finally Proteus will give in. And when your mind is completely in control, then the gods can speak to you, such as with the stars. And that experience I provided. So Menelaus says to Idotia, show me the trick to trap this ancient power or he'll see or sense me first and slip away. It's hard for a mortal man to force a god. So some island viewers says, when you're with your being and meditation, you have to be demanding with your God. Sounds, hippic- sounds uh, blasphemous, but the thing is, when you're concentrating, you have to really be so dedicated that no matter what happens, you're never going to forget what you're doing. And that you're going to demand to your being, show me and teach me, so that you can give me the insight I need. And so, uh, basically, Menelaus, described, or Menelaus was describing in his story how he catched Proteus. Now there was an ambush that would have overpowered us all. Overpowering, true, the awful reek of all those sea-fed brutes. So Proteus was surrounded by sea lions and many animals that are very uh, that smell terrible. That's our mind. Lust is, smells awful. It's a psychological characteristic which it hypnotizes the mind and it's filthy. Overpower- when we try to meditate on our lust, that element fights to feed itself and is really overpowering. The solution is uh, Idotia gives him a kind of ambrosia under the nose. Who did dream of bedding down with the monster of the deep? But the goddess Idotia sped to our rescue, found the cure with ambrosia, daubing it under each man's nose. That lovely scent, it drowned the creature's stench. So what is that ambrosia? Is our transmutation. When you have transmuted sexual energy, you can confront with strength your mind, the lust of the sea animals we carry within. But we with a battle cry, we rushed him, flung out our arms around him. He'd lost nothing, the old rascal, none of his cunning, quick techniques. First he shifted into a great bearded lion, and then a serpent, a panther, a ramping wild boar, a torrent of water, a tree with soaring branch tops. But we held on for a dear life, braving it out until at last, that quick change artist, the old wizard, began to weary of all this. So you got to control your mind even if it shapeshifts and is we need the pliancy of the mind to control it no matter what uh, distractions it provides as pl- as a homer teaches well again he said the great myths were no myths whatsoever they had to do with forces it's psychological teachings so how do we use force in our mind to control our mind so the higher levels of shamatha or this really what calm abiding is pertains to superior consciousness and the internal planes. So the nine degrees of concentration we're explaining pertain to leading to this point, which is a type of concentration in which we can become uh, very skilled in the, in the astral world or beyond. So, the fact, so this uh, image being above the mountains represents the superior dimensions, the tree of life. And so we emphasize... Uh, in brief, the nature of Kabbalah. We have on the left an image of Arik Ampin, the celestial man, divided into four worlds. And likewise, the tree of life on the right, divided into four worlds, which pertain to Atsilut, Bria, Yetzira, and Asya. Asya is the world of action, matter, energy. Yetzira is the world of formation. 
Bria creation and Atziluth archetypes. So the, a simple way we can break it down is in the Tree of Life, the world of a- archetypes, which are very abstract. The nature of Christ is an Atziluth. Keter Chokmah Bina, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the world of Bria, we have the innermost, Chesed, the Geburah, the divine soul, and then Tifereth, the human soul. So everything we've been talking about in terms of concentration pertains to how we use our willpower. And in the higher levels of uh, Shamata, we are in the world of Bria, represented by the rainbow, as well as the world of Yetzirah, which is the mental world, Netzach, the astral world, Hod, the vital world, Yesod. So everything we're describing here pertains to Asya at first, how we in our physical body met, learn to meditate. And then when we develop concentration here, we can investigate the world of Yetzirah, world of formation, the astral world, the mental world. That's the angelic world too, right? Governed by angels. Bria is governed by archangels like Samael, Orifiel, Gabriel, Raphael, etc. Atziluth pertains to uh, the direct influence of God within the tree of life. So this image has, we'll explain more in another lecture, how the tree of life was represented in each of these four worlds. Because we use this glyph from the ten Sephiroth as a map of our consciousness or the higher levels of concentration too, in which uh, each Sephiroth has four aspects. Atziluth, in which God acts directly. Bria, when the forces of divinity work through the archangels and the different Sephiroth. Yetzirah, the angels working under the archangels. Under the cosmo creators, we say, and Asya is our physical plane. And we say that we say in, in more complicated sense there are forty spheres, but uh, we talk about ten in synthesis. But I, I point this out because we're at the feet here, Malkut. We're trying to concentrate, and we we're in the work with our waters and control our earth. We can enter into the superior worlds, represented by the solar system, the genitalia of the celestial man. And likewise, up the tree of life. So there are degrees of how we develop cognizance. So lastly, to emphasize the points we made, I'd like to quote for you, uh, again, a Sufi teaching by all, from Al-Risala, Principles of Sufism, a teaching by Al-Jurari. Al-Jurari uh, said that whoever does not establish awe of duty and vigilance in his relationship to himself and God, will not obtain to disclosure of the unseen or contemplation, mushahida, of the divine. So what is, so what is divinity? Is the tree of life. Allah is the top of the tree of life, Keter Chokmah Bina, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the light of divinity, manifests in the tree of life. Is the being. Well, what about Dat? How does that fit in the end? Dat is... Uh, the secret sphere in the throat pertaining to knowledge, sexual knowledge, how we work in transmutation. Because so with the mantra, the throat is how we work with our creative potential and our vital body specifically. Yes. And so if we do not establish awe of duty, meaning we don't uh, really feel that awe and fear of divinity and the realization. And the fear that if we don't practice, we will um, generate 
it's only by developing that awe of our practices, that really the respect that we have towards the tradition and the exercises we use to develop vigilance in relationship to ourselves and our being, we won't obtain to disclosure, meaning to tear the veil, to seeing the eternal planes and develop contemplation, meaning the cognizance, like when you see the stars in the astral plane. Contemplation in Arabic is mushahida, which relates to the Arabic pillar of faith, shahida, which is, I believe in Allah, Allah is Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. So a real Muslim is someone who's really experienced divinity, has that cognizance of the divine. So we can only reach that if we develop our capacity to concentrate. Then uh, once you develop concentration, then insight will come spontaneously. That's the next stage we're going to talk about. The first demonstration you have there was with the, the importance of Samuel Andriar said, more, more or less, you're not going anywhere unless you develop in meditation, serenity first. Right. That's what they have there. Uh, personally, I found that to, to reach that, well, to progress along that path, getting serenity first. The breathing again, I mean, personally for myself, is that rhythmical breath once you find it. That, to me, first, that leads to the serenity of mind. Right. So, so transmuting, working with that, is how you clear your mind. Especially like a mantra S M Hon. I found I found very effective for me. Uh, illuminate the star, star, uh, sky of your mind. So just the, just the, what did you once say? We just practice the right. Not, not the other. You mentioned some other uh, words in there, part of the mantra. Yes. You can do the vowel S too. Is great for that. You can do Inri. You can do Om Masi Padme Hum, Gate Gate Paragate Parasam Gate Bodhi Swaha, Klim Krishnaya Govindaya Gobijana Balabaya Swaha. There are many mantras you can do to train your mind that way. So that's basic. We should do that every time we practice so that the mind is clear and then we can de- or develop that serenity that we need. I find also when you do concentrate on mantra, more and more it's effective in knocking out those extraneous thoughts. There's just no room. I mean, I concentrate on the vibration. It's in a serene uh, state of mind. That's what helped me more and more. The extraneous crazy thoughts that I don't know where they came from. Then there's no room for those things. I'm concentrating on that mantra. I guess there's a certain discipline on my part I'm trying to develop that helps. So the thing is, if, you, if you're not experiencing any distractions, that pertains to a state relating to the ninth degree in which there's no, uh, in which there's no, uh, the mind is not distracted. There's no elements perturbing the mind. There's just serenity. The and there's degrees. So there's so sometimes that ninth degree for one person may be different for another, or even within a single individual, it'll fluctuate. So don't think that uh, by describing these nine stages, I meant to say, is that you go from one to the other strictly, like a checklist. There's fluctuation. In one meditation session, you can go from the first degree to the sixth or the fourth degree to the ninth and go back again. You can have an experience, lose it, go back to a wild mind. And so it, it's dynamic, pertaining to our, our effort of will and our, our work, as well as uh, the um, influence, what our being wants. Any questions? That's what I was going to say about what something else is like empty your mind and that it seems like we have to practice with ethics and with a 
object of meditation, and that's going to get us closer to the point where we can empty our mind and thoughts. But like to think we can just say, oh, just stop thinking, you know, it's not no, going to happen just like a step like that. It's kind of a combination of steps, and that's how it feels to me. Yeah, and that's, and that's why the Samael and Vior said that there are many students of, like, say, Krishnamurti. He's a, Krishnamurti is a great master. Taught a lot about the valuable things about the mind. But the problem with his students is that, well, for first off, Krishnamurti didn't teach chastity. He wasn't allowed to teach that. So he didn't teach it openly, and therefore students study him very intellectually. Meanwhile, they fornicate. And therefore the mind, the person who doesn't practice chastity, there's no purity of mind, there's no pure ethical discipline. The mind is chaotic. And so these people who study these doctrines but who fornicate, they, uh, they're not fulfilling the very basic requisite of religion or yoga, meaning yama and niyama. Restrain the mind, restrain the body, and precepts, just restrain the mind. That's basic. Without that, you know, many people, they try to meditate for 20 years, 30 years or more, but they fornicate. They're just wasting their time. It's really, really is tragic. And because uh, people try skipping steps. They think, oh, I don't need to practice brahmacharya. But Pantanjali said, this is the basic. And Buddha said, you need to be chaste. Jesus said the same thing. You must be born again of water and spirit. And uh, if we don't, here's the thing. Like Shivananda said, if you fulfill the basic requirements of ethics in your daily life, your concentration will be very strong and meditation will be easy. So try to apply ethical discipline and purity in mind and body and heart moment by moment, day by day. And then when you concentrate, it'll be much easier. The mind will be stable. And then you can, then you can practice the higher degrees of meditation itself. But the firmer we are in our, in our foundations, really, like in that image of the pagoda, Really, then you can ascend towards the the superior worlds. Any other comments? Who painted the cave painting? Like, not, I, I know who the story is by, but like, who painted? I don't know. So that's not all symbolism, right? Because there was so much random stuff in that painting. Yeah, I think in that painting, it's what's relevant though. Is I think there was uh, people looking at iPhones or television screens. Yes. Which I, I picked that because that's typically most of what we do. I mean, honestly, I mean, I, if I watch television, personally, if I watch television, I try to watch opera or films that are meaningful. But the fact that, you know, people are hypnotized by the television screen. They don't see the light. They don't see the light. So, ikasia in Greek translates literally as imagination. But somebody else says it's darkness. So, it's a, kind of an interesting dynamic. With ikasia... We can be visually very awake, perceiving images and light physically, but psychologically we can be completely asleep. So we have perception, but it's not conscious. So when we have television, that typically people get hypnotized by that. Yeah. And so the darkness, you know, the world is really what the Book of Genesis says: the world is formless and without form. Darkness is over the face of the deep, and that's our elephant, is keeping us sitting in front of the television or of our distractions. And so uh, one of the things that the Buddhists teach is uh, the need to refrain from the paths of distraction, meaning part of our ethical discipline should be avoiding, say, going to movie theaters where in the astral atmosphere there's a lot of filth, 
You mentioned dance halls once, didn't you? Some play, some depends. I mean, uh, I mean, brothels and places like that, bars are filled with larvae and filth, and part of our ethical discipline is to avoid places like that. So I always recommend for students don't go to those don't go to those places. Um, if you want your mind to be clean, uh, you know, it's good to feed our mind with healthy impressions. If you watch a movie, watch an opera, which we'll be doing more of here. Watch something positive. That gives you good impressions in the mind that can inspire you to really connect with your being. Whereas watching uh, the movie Seven or something or about violence and bloodshed or films that are very, you know, are, you know more, offensive to the more, site. More and more, some of them are, they're not innocuous at all. They have all of the FBI, not the graphic, FBI, I forget what it is, the FBI series or something like that. I right. forget who the actors and the actresses are. I mean, they're, some of those are brutal, the way they serve them. I forget the name of them. Uh, I only watched them once or twice and that was enough. Yeah, we should we should have good feed your mind with good impressions. I mean, I I personally try to avoid that. Hi, is that painting? One more question. Did you also see the peeker like behind the bench? There's like just eyes. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Is there symbolism behind? I was just so fascinated by that painting. It's because in that image, uh, we find uh, you know people are caught. uh, We can see that person is somebody who's on the other side of the wall and has the opportunity to see the light, but they they don't care. That's my interpretation of an image. But uh, but the fact that their faces are like zombies—that's really our daily life. Yeah. So, um, in order to change, we have to work with the fire, which is that the sexual energy to give you light. And then when you are transmuting, watch what you eat. The Muslims say, eat only what is lawful in Sufi scripture. Some retains as just physical food, not eating pork. That's one thing. Pork is an animal with a lot of degenerative elements that can feed our lust. But to eat what is lawful is to eat the right impressions, meaning what you feed your mind. Meaning avoiding consuming garbage, whether television or books or uh, visiting bad places. And their questions or comments will conclude. Oh, I did want to ask you about, you know, just to go over again, uh, first right in that book on the rejuvenation. You mentioned after the first, was the first right or the second one? Where you, the first one. Yes. Where you spent, you said after upon completing that, you know, shutting your eyes and you know, you're standing there, you, there was some other... Uh, you bend your knees. Bend your knees. Take your three fingers, put them on your third eye. This is partially to gain your balance, but also you're, you're taking all that energy you accumulated through the gyration, sending it to your third eye. Close your eyes, gain your balance, focus that energy, that chi or ki on your third eye to awaken your clairvoyance. You don't say anything, there's no mantra, you just focus. No, just focus. Just focus. The only the mantras you really need to do in that practice is uh, open sesame. It's in the, the end of the book. And uh, that mantra is something we need to do well, symbolically, you need to open our mind to receive the solar effluvia. So again, to concentrate, runes can help us. Sacred rites can help us. Right, thank you for coming. Thank you.
To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.